Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Paradox. I'm Craig Eason, your host and editorial director at Fathom World. Now, in what I'll hope will be a two-part short series, we're going to tackle the big question of how the transformation of shipping will or can be financed or funded. Ship finance had traditionally been the stronghold of a small number of somewhat traditional banks with a strong focus on ship finance, providing loans under traditional covenants in a manner that seemed steeped in tradition and legend. But how things have changed, the crash in 2008 and the Basel II requirements saw many of these traditional sources of liquidity for owners turn away from shipping, an industry that suddenly appeared high risk and too volatile. Bonds, private equity houses and in some corners of the technology space, venture capital emerged. And now they are increasingly looking for less risk, particularly climate risk. A climate risk is where an investment is at risk of not being paid back because the asset or investment is unable to deliver due to the impact of climate change. The latest financial instrument that is being used is shipping bonds. They're soon to get a set of criteria of their own to help determine when they can be called green or climate bonds, but more of that later. But then came this transformation. Digitalization and the merging of shipping into the general societal consciousness of climate change responsibility that's now seen shipping go for its own decarbonisation strategy. So now when we think about the goal being set by the International Maritime Organisation that shipping should halve its greenhouse gas emissions by 50% compared to 2008 figure, it means that all of international shipping must, on an annual basis, emit less than 450-odd million tonnes of CO2 a year, and it's likely that that figure would be less. So to do that means some big, big changes, but how is this going to change and who will pay? Earlier this year, a figure emerged. It'll cost about $1.2 trillion to help in the decarbonisation of the infrastructure around shipping. It was a headline-grabbing figure and was likely a bit frightening for ship owners who were wondering how that would fall on their table. Dr Tristan Smith at University College London's Energy Institute was behind the research and into that report in the cost of decarbonisation. He and others from the Institute and from UMass, a consultancy that's been born out of the shipping decarbonisation work, have been instrumental in other work such as the IMO Third Greenhouse Gas Study and the pending criteria that I mentioned earlier about low-carbon shipping bonds. So I asked him about this $1.2 trillion figure and how it's been calculated. One of the things that when you're in one paradigm like we are at the moment, we're in the fossil paradigm, is you can't imagine something that we know has got this incredible complexity and global structure. You can't imagine an alternative to that. And what we're trying to do with that is say... Ultimately, by this point in time, the system will look completely different. And that system will look like this. And the amount of capital that you would need to get there is this amount in order to then essentially break down that picture a bit. Because when you look at it from the bottom up, when you look at it from the money that you might have to do in innovation and R&D here, you never get that 
ability to stand back and say, gosh, it's that size and it's that scale and this, and the challenge that we're all about to go into and the fact that there's this alternative conceivable system. Um, I now understand that. You don't, you don't see that when you just look at these small marginal steps that you might have to take. Um, you also don't necessarily plan them in the coherent way. So if you start with, here's the end game, and this is what that total, totality looks like, you can then go back and say, right, well, what's the sequence of steps needed to get there? And I think that's that's the that's the logic that we've used in a lot of our work over the years. You know, if we know we've got an absolute target of 50% reduction minimum in 2050, the thing that has really helped us to break that down into a nearer term objective is that that means you need to start building zero emission ships from about 2030. You know, there's a fleet turnover that means that on an individual asset of the 50 odd thousand ships that we know we need to change, those will need to start changing from 2030 onwards. And this is the equivalent of that, but just in financial terms. So if someone is building an ammonia plant tomorrow and they throw a billion dollars at it, or BP, for example, who've just announced their project in Australia, say, we've sunk this investment into it, we can all look at that and go, okay, that's one thousandth of where we need to get to. <laughs> and and that's helpful because otherwise you look at a billion dollars and you say, gosh, that's a lot of money. Maybe that solved the problem. And you don't have any sense of where that contributes in that wider scale of things. And most of that trillion dollars is nothing to do with the fleet. Most of that trillion dollars is to do with the land side investment, which was the other key message that we really, having figured that out ourselves, wanted to share with other people. You know, it, we, it, it's not about the ship. <laughs> it's about it's about the energy suppliers. And the sooner those companies in the energy supply system wake up to that and see the opportunity or see that they've got a pathway at the moment which fundamentally is going to change you know, in its, in its totality and that they need to start doing the equivalent of building the zero carbon ships in 2030, but on the land side. Um, the sooner we get that out and understood, the sooner we can start planning for it. So it's, it's, it's all about the investment that's needed in the, in the, in the fuel supply chain, effectively, um, whatever this new fuel, because you, you mentioned in the report that it was predominantly ammonia that you, were, you did the report based on the transition to an ammonia fuel for shipping. But you did say that if other fuels, hydrogen or other fuels were selected, that it was quite likely that the cost would not be significantly different. It would be a, a similar cost if we took that same transition. So the change of the fuel supply chain is where the largest part of that one2 trillion dollars needs to be invested it's a difficult question because it's a crystal ball kind of question but when you're looking at all of these different fuels and a lot of people are talking to me about no no one solution you know many horses in the show different fuels for different cases etc etc if we're building multiple supply chains if we're building multiple solutions for multiple scenarios which could happen so some ships are going down the hydrogen route, some ships are going down the ammonia route, some ships um, may go down the power to X route. Um, would, that, would, that, would that complexity increase that figure significantly because we would need a lot more different supply chains to be evolving? No, not necessarily. Um, but I also don't buy that story that you've just given me. You know, I don't think that's the way the world works. It's about economies of scale and availability and price. And I think most of the people who talk about multi-fuel futures haven't factored those those things in. Um, so we've we've been trying to factor them in um, in a lot of our work, and and that's why we're we're constantly 
saying at this point in time, ammonia is is the dominant fuel in a lot of our work. Um, but trying to tread this very careful um, line between sounding um, agnostic on in order to keep all the innovation that we need open, um, whilst giving some information about what we're finding at this point in time, and 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 you can reach similar conclusions if you just look at the very basic engineering behind this. It's about the cost of production is a function of the en- energy cost, um, and and in a lot of our analysis, it's it's a vast majority of the of the price of that fuel is the amount of electricity you have to put into creating one ton of it or mm. uh, one joule of it from an energy perspective and and um so basically what you need is a process that converts electrical energy into a liquid fuel in the most efficient way possible and that tells you what gets you the what gives you the cheapest fuel um there are factors which sit on top of that like the energy density of the fuel and the amount of space you need on the ship but but we can show in the calculations we've done that those factors are minuscule in comparison um to the basic cost of the of the of the jewel of liquid en- energy, um, and so, so when you when you end up with that situation, and we we've just written this paper with Lawrence um, Register for the Methanol Institute that was that was out a few weeks ago, we did it for forty odd fuels. Ammonia is the lowest cost fuel from a total cost of operation perspective. Um, in the long run, consistently, every scenario, it's just you know basically the the graphs tell you everything that you need to know, which is yes you know synthetic biomethane sorry synthetic methane um gets cheaper over time but so does ammonia and it gets cheaper at the same rate so if it's cheaper already you know in 30 years time it's still going to be cheaper it's, and and if it's if it's cheaper and i mean that in the total cost of operation sense it's going to be a dominant fuel because yes there might be some niche use for someone who's still got an lng asset that they haven't managed to retrofit but um but that will be a small margin of the fuel mix. Now, to your question about whether this impacts the trillion dollars, you know, if you say, okay, let's say LNG gets to 5% of the fuel mix over the next few years before it starts to decline in demand growth, um, and it's currently, what, less than 1%. Um, so that's quite a rapid growth rate before people kind of go, okay, this isn't the answer, we need something else. In practice, not just people like me saying that's what we need to do. So then you've got five percent. So then that starts to decline, and then someone comes in and says, "Okay, those assets might need two percent of the fuel mix to be serviced for the next decade." So it's worth me building a, a synthetic natural gas plant. You know, that's not going to be a very significant portion of that trillion dollars. It's not a large portion of the fuel mix, and if that plant is slightly more expensive than the assumption we've got, which is that it would have been ammonia because we've we've assumed that everyone does the rational thing and just optimize on that pathway. Um, then it won't, it won't change the overall number. What matters is what the 90% of the fuel mix in, in the time scale that we're talking about does um, not what the one or 2% does. So, so it's, it's, it's not going to impact that over overall figure, but in terms of the, the fuel costs, it might, I mean, t- I'm thinking here in the long run, you mentioned that the, the fuel costs to the ship owner assuming we've still got a similar business model as we have now the cost to the ship owner the relative fuel costs to the ship owner i mean would we see them separate from each other you said that you know synthetic lng and ammonia may both become cheaper at the same time but and they would follow follow similar curves but would they naturally would they actually follow similar curves if certain fuels become 
less in demand, if synthetic LNG became less in demand, I would assume that they would therefore become more expensive because they're harder to acquire. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what the point about availability and and the availability point is critical for shipping because, and you can see this in LNG at the moment, in in the state of the market today, you need to have it available in multiple locations from multiple suppliers in order to have the competition to give you you know, serious pricing and not just price setting. Um, as soon as you have a fuel which is so niche that in order for it to work, the suppliers have gone into 10 hubs or something. Um, if they're the only player there because it's only a 1%, 2% of the fuel mix, then, then, the, then yes, of course they start giving prices which aren't competitive and then the ship owners say, this isn't going to work. So I, I, this, is, this is a timing question from the volumes perspective. And I think... You don't have to do very much maths to look at the efficiency argument and the price argument and then say that a lot of what is being said at the moment about very optimistic scenarios for the viability of liquid liquid synthetic methane uh, doesn't make sense. Dr Tristan Smith, as I mentioned, one of the lead technical experts and the author of a report into the cost for decarbonising shipping. And he's also been helping the Climate Bond Initiative create criteria for green shipping, for green shipping bonds that can be certified under the CBI scheme. It's yet another move from financial institutions to ensure that their portfolios have lower risk. Sean Kidney is CEO of CBI, so I called him up to ask him about the criteria and about what they're expecting to do with climate bonds. But first, I asked him to describe how a climate bond would differ from an ordinary one. Put it this way. If, if you want to borrow some money from your uncle to buy a car, your uncle's going to insist that you take the risk for it, right? He's, not going to, he, he's, not, he's less interested in saying, well, if I crash the car, you've got the car, okay? He wants you to take personal risk for it. That's, that's what a corporate bond is, essentially. But he's saying in this case, but look, on balance, can you make sure you buy an electric car? Because I think that's going to be better for the future. And you say, sure, Bob, give me the money. I'll buy an electric car, cross my heart and hope to die. But, of course, I'll take for credit. If you crash it, you pay back the money, uh, et cetera. And that's all a green bond is. Yeah. Just someone saying, I'd rather you spend the money in a certain – in fact, I won't really give you the money unless you spend it in a certain direction, but I'm still expecting you to take credit for it. And the same happens in, um, in shipping and in banks and, and so on. So it's full faith in credit. Now, of course, there are extra benefits as a result of doing that, like the uncle is more likely to give you the money. There is an appetite for climate bonds. On its website, the Climate Bond Initiative splashes a figure of there being about $120 billion worth of green bonds out of a possible $100 trillion bond market. Kidney says that appetite is growing, especially as CBI expands. Its criteria for different industries to assist investors in the green portfolio decision-making. Kidney says that by creating a taxonomy for certain bonds in different industries, it's also offering guidance for other financial instruments. And this is one of the knock-on effects as companies seek loans, for example, and may be looking to apply some sustainability, green or climate-related criteria to ensure that they have low risk. In shipping terms, it means that they're meaning to actually lower their risks of investing in stranded assets. Whilst we're doing it for the bond market and there is bond appetite, we're also doing it as general guidance for investors. You know, we have a number of investors around the world who use the climate bonds taxonomy as the filtering criteria for the sustainability reporting. 
to meet their objectives set by the board about sustainable investing. And there are many investors at this stage now that are trying to make their portfolios more sustainable and greener. So there's a washover effect, if you like. And, of course, they're always asking questions about different kinds of investments, whether it's property or aviation or shipping. They do come up. And so our ambition is to slowly but surely flesh out the universe of investments, at least to the extent of covering the major emitting sectors, in a way that will be of utility to the investors we speak with. So there's a leaching effect into equity and other forms of investment there. Sean Kidney from the Climate Bond Initiative about the move to provide low shipping criteria for pension funds and other investors that seek low risk portfolios. The criteria that CBI has developed with the help of Dr Tristan Smith has not been well received in all quarters. Last week, a lobby group focused on promoting LNG as a marine fuel, CLNG, sent an open letter to the CBI. CLNG chairman Peter Keller had been due to talk to me about the letter and the insistence that the CBI criteria is too prescriptive and not goal-focused. I'm hoping to have him on the podcast next week in the second part of this two-part focus on finance. Now, to end this episode of Aronax, I'll hand over to Nick Chubb from TTS for his roundup of the week's activities. Thanks, Craig. A few weeks ago, we published a prediction that China would be a leader in autonomous shipping within the next five years. Uh, because of coronavirus, last week we saw the much-hyped Yara Birkeland put on hold indefinitely. Uh, but interestingly, this week uh, we saw the first steel cut in the construction of Zifei, which is China's first autonomous container ship. It's a 300 TEU feeder, and it will be manned, but it will be equipped with an intelligent navigation system that will enable fully autonomous sailing and operation. The consortium behind it plans to have Zifei sailing by the second half of 2021. And as far as I'm concerned, as things stand, it's almost certainly going to be the first autonomous container ship in, in regular commercial operation. In other news this week, uh, Facebook uh, are getting into the, um, the, the subsea services market. They've published plans to build a 37,000-kilometer subsea cable that goes around Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. It's called To Africa, and it will provide internet connectivity to Africa's 1.3 billion people, 25% of whom at the moment are not online. Uh, it will provide three times the network capacity of all of Af- Africa's subsea cables today. This is a huge project and it's going to need significant engineering and uh, maritime offshore expertise. Uh, It certainly makes for an interesting opportunity for the offshore industry at a time when it's facing a a sort of looming existential crisis. Finally, coronavirus has provided us an interesting lesson in timing. For 17 years, Skype has been at the forefront of video calling. Uh, It was even such a stalwart of communication at one point that the word Skype was added to the dictionary to mean to communicate over the internet. Um, So surely COVID-19 would have been Skype's moment to shine. But at a time when video conferencing is absolutely exploding, Skype has been sidelined by businesses and consumers in favor of Zoom, Teams, House Party and Slack. Uh, This week it was announced that Zoom is now worth more than the world's seven largest airlines combined and Skype is being quietly retired by Microsoft. There's a whole load of different lessons to learn there, but I think the biggest is on the importance of timing. And just like Skype, electronic bills of lading have been around for nearly two decades, but we haven't really seen any significant traction. Um, But now it appears that the timing is right for digital bills to go mainstream. 
the Digital Container Shipping Association, DCSA, this week announced that they are taking on the challenge of developing an openly available standard for e-bills of lading. The standards body, which represents about 80% of container carrying capacity, um, has launched a call for collaborators to help them develop this new initiative. Uh, and I definitely encourage you to, to, to get involved if you can. Nick Chubb from Thetius. That's it for this week. Please send this podcast to your friends and family, well, maybe not your family, but to anyone interested in the transformation of the shipping and ocean space and make sure that you and they subscribe. And remember to go to fathom.world and register for the weekly newsletter, The Transformation, to make sure that you get the news about the changing shape of our industries into your inbox. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.